Well, welcome to another episode of Contra Mundum. I'm here, of course, with co-host Andrew Isker, and we're excited to be talking with Lafayette Lee for part two of our New Deal and post-New Deal discussion. Uh, as you can see today, I have a very ugly background. I'm in my office. I have no professional camera and no professional mic. And of course, Andrew made me lead off the conversation. So you get what you pay for on this podcast. So Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Great, uh, great week. Uh, a lot of lot of interesting stuff has happened. We've had a lot of interesting discourse on uh, the former uh, Twitter.com and, and online um, regarding Christian nationalism and uh, blasphemy laws and Francisco say, Franco and all those things. Yeah. I want to say something. So it's actually funny because I've, I've said so many times on the show, like just dispositionally, I've always just um, thought of myself as a right wing reactionary, um, you know, traditionalist, you know, like the Christian yeah. nationals. I, I love Stephen's book, but like, I, I was never like intent on just like adopting that and making that my thing. And like, that's me. But yeah. The, yeah. But the hysteria, on the center and on the conservative movement against it yeah. has just like it it's kind of forced me into that position where it's fun it's fun to like adopt the label and play the game because they're so uh, mindless about everything they have no conception of history they have no conception about the, the problems and the dynamics of power in political society and political theology over time and so you just you're kind of forced into the situation where you're defending you know, the opposite stand, the historically dominant stance so often that you might as well just, you know, kind of fit yourself under that umbrella. So it's just yeah. funny the way it all, it all shakes out. But I was just thinking to myself on the way over to my office today, I, you know, I see myself dispositionally in many ways as much more comfortable with like De Maestra and Edmund Burke and some of the counter-revolutionaries in the 19th, you know, 18th and 19th uh, century um, more than even like the Puritans and stuff. So I, I, I'm on the reactionary traditionalist, right? Like that's just who I am, the, but they're yeah. just making such memes and characters, you know, caricatures of themselves that I might as well just play the game with them. Cause they're ridiculous. I, anyway. I know. I don't even, I mean, and it's, it's hard because like, I would much rather have, um, you know, interlocutors who know what they're talking about. And maybe they dis disagree with you. That's fine. Like people are going to disagree. That's 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 well, life. The other but thing you don't know what is, they're talking about. The other thing too is maybe they don't know what they're talking about because I didn't know what I was talking about seven years ago. Right? This yeah. process yeah. we're rediscovering things for the first time in the American context. You know that's what the whole resourcement has been about. But if you don't know something, you don't need to sit there and pontificate about it. You know, and pretend like it, this is sort of the this is sort of the problem, the flaw of like Whiggish history, like. You know, year current is all we need to know about anything, and we don't even need yeah. to investigate or rethink at all. And that's, I think, the more serious problem is they're not even yes. willing to question themselves to stand outside of liberal democracy and critique it from other perspectives, more traditional and historic, historically honest, uh, you know, perspectives. Yes, and I mean, and to that end, I can segue into our guest here, Lafayette Lee, who is back on the show. I, I said we had to. Uh, I think I, on Twitter I said we had to get up to 500 subscribers or or he wouldn't come back. Uh, and so we did that successfully just yesterday. So he's he's back here for round two uh, to continue to dis continue the discussion from last week. And uh, you know we we got into the New Deal and we got into uh, you know the history of the New Deal, both the regime narrative of what the New Deal is and what it actually was this this revolutionary period in American. 
uh, history, American politics. And so uh, welcome back to the show, Lafayette. We're going to talk now this week about communist subversion in America from the 30s through the 50s. Um, and so uh, why don't we go right off the bat? Just how right was Joe McCarthy, Lafayette? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I did write about this in I Am 1776. I, I, I make the case that Joe McCarthy was uh, he was self-interested like all politicians. So always remember that when you go through the McCarthy case, right? Yeah. Um, but on top of that, McCarthy was, he could be self-interested. He could be excessive. He was bombastic. He, he very fairly is characterized often as a demagogue. All those things might be true, but Joe McCarthy was right about the problem of communist subversion that had come before, especially in the period during the war. And what many failed to understand about him or appreciate about him is that he was also correct in the security situation of the United States at the time mm -hmm. in which the United States did have a serious security problem in which they were not able to address security problems within the administrative state, meaning whether that was card-carrying communists or people who could not pass the background check that they had at the time, which was very poorly devised, to be honest. There was a security risk. And Joe McCarthy, that was actually his biggest, that was his biggest contention with the Truman administration and then after with the Eisenhower administration. It was not just searching, hunting for communists in our ranks. It was also identifying the problem itself is that the administrative state was not adequately, uh, they were not adequately weighing the security risks of having infiltrators and subversives and other people in there. And so he was addressing that problem. And unfortunately, he's been used to kind of smear and tarnish the entire anti-communist movement, which, you know, went on for almost a whole century. And so he's a very important person, I think, for people on the right to become acquainted with because they'll quickly find that while there are there are there's always some truth to some of the allegations and the way that he's characterized, most of it is is quite unfair, especially when you put it up against the backdrop of the time period in which he lived and the other players that he was contending with at the time. Yeah, I, I think I mean, it's you know in, in my history that I I was given in public school, it was exactly as you describe that. <clears throat> He is, he is this demagogic guy. He, he would um, give these speeches and he was hunting under communists for every, under every rock. And um, all of it was just a, this big boogeyman and it didn't really exist. That, that was always the subtext in the, in, in the regime narrative is that there really wasn't any communist subversion in the United States. So explain, I mean, we got into it a little bit last week. We kind of ran out of time. And so if we have to backtrack a little bit, that's okay. Uh, but explain a little bit more about the degree to which there was communist subversion in uh, the Roosevelt and, and later Truman administration, um, in, in, and, and not just in, in political office, but also all throughout the country, in the, in the universities, in mm -hmm. uh, the you know, nascent mass media. Um, Hollywood was, was rife with it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing that gets lumped in with, with McCarthy is uh, HUAC. And um, the uh, the lists of communist uh, card carrying communists that got blackballed from Hollywood, all of those things, you know, play play a role in this period. And they're it's treated like it's a witch hunt. 
Like these are just these are just people that are like Democrats only a little bit further left and they're being persecuted for their politics. And isn't that so horrible and evil? That's that's the the court narrative of it. Uh, but is that true? Yeah, no, I think that see, this is a really good place to for people that are trying to make sense of the present. I think that the quote, the so-called Red Scare is very instructive. And let's let's backtrack just for a second and go to what preceded the Red Scare, because it's important to be able to uh, basically get the landscape down because the, the Red Scare, the quote unquote Red Scare that came after the war that really picked up and, and wrote, probably hit its apex 1954, which would be the year that Joe McCarthy was censured. Um, this all came on the heels of a Brown Scare. Okay. And the Brown Scare was very much the creation of uh, of media propaganda through the Roosevelt administration, um, forces that were aligned to get us, you know, to push push us into the war. So that would be like industrialists, financiers, uh, Roosevelt administrators. I mean, these are all people in politics, and uh, you know, it was very popular too. Like even in, down in the region in the South. You know, the war was very popular. The idea of, of mobilizing for war against uh, Imperial Japan and, and Nazi Germany was more popular in certain pockets of America uh, for various reasons. It's very complex, but essentially America was in this strange point in which prior to Pearl Harbor, most Americans on the aggregate were not supportive of going into the war. Obviously, as we discussed last time, FDR was was pushing that very hard. And then there were other, you know, you have different factions and different groups of people culturally, you know, like I mentioned, Southerners, there's going to be people that were more open to this, that felt more sympathetic to England at the time. I mean, so it's very complex, but essentially America was not ready for war uh, culturally, right? Mm -hmm. But FDR ramps up his war mobilization. Now, in the process of doing this, and I mentioned these guys last time, you have the rise of the America First Committee, which has been slandered and smeared quite a lot in recent years. Uh, but if you actually dig into like John T. Flynn and some of the other movers and shakers within that movement, you know, it was a fairly it, it was characteristically an apolitical movement. I mean, it pulled in people that were conservatives, liberals, progressives. It even had Marxists in its ranks. Um, these were people that were fundamentally opposed to going into war. Many veterans from the First World War were involved in this. And, and it's a good vignette to kind of paint how the Brown Scare picked up, because during the 1930s, you have the rise of fascism. Um, it, well, you have the rise of fascism in the 20s in Italy. Then later on, you have the National Socialists in Germany. And the United States is is not very friendly culturally. It's culturally, they're not very friendly to communists, but they're also not friendly to fascists and Nazis. This is just... So you even have people that are on the left that are, declare themselves as anti-fascist, but you also have like the American Legion that is very hostile to anyone purporting that ideology in the United States. So there's a cultural uh, muscular backlash to fascists in the United States. This gets overlooked a lot, um, but there really was never, and I say this over and over, there has never been and never really will be a endemic fascist movement that's tr truly like american there's not a fascist tradition in no. the united states at all i would argue communism actually has more of like a root in the united states in the way in which uh, it was there's a reason why it was a little bit more um there were a lot more americans that that kind of turned their their eyes to communism because it 
was more of a natural outgrowth. It wasn't necessarily of a foreign import, but fascism was more like that. Mm-hmm. And I know I'll get some pushback for that, but I, I, I can back that up. Yeah, um, let me let me. I, I'm not going to yeah. necessarily push back uh, uh, too hard because I think I probably agree with you uh, because there there were labor movements in America that weren't. I mean, largely on the right, we we kind of assume that that the labor movements in America were entirely um, a, a creation of you know Ellis Island immigrants and agitators, anarchists, communists, uh, things like that, uh, but. But that wasn't necessarily the case, right? It was right. Um, there were there were. I mean, you, you can even go back to you know these sort of uh, populist revolts all the way back to the beginning of the American Republic, um, like like Shays Rebellion and things like that. Where I mean, I don't know if it, it would be right to characterize those as as like labor revolts, but they're they're kind of still within that milieu where it's this yeah. populist movement reacting to things that the, the government or the, the elites have done and how, how they've gotten economically um, uh, taken advantage of. Um, and so w- would you, would you categorize it that way or, or how, you know, how would you? Look yeah. At it? yeah. No, no. I think, I think that's a good way to bring that up because, you know, the 19th century is very much defined by this contest between labor and capital. Right. And I mean, really like the old Democrat party, this yeah. was, you know, they, they were really like the bastions of labor. And so mm-hmm. you have this natural populist uh, fervor on on the Democrat side, on the political spectrum, all, all throughout the 19th century into the 20th, right? Mm-hmm. Now, communism is not the same thing. And I, I know that you're doing yeah. that distinction. You know, you have really like the first communists come to America around the time of the war between the states. And you have... You have German, it's a, a, you know, these people of German extraction come and they, and there are these small communities of people that are Marxists, you know, and they're, and, and this is, this is an important cultural point to, to bring up here is Americans have never, they've been slow to understand the changes that are happening abroad. They're not quick to recognize them as they, as they kind of take root in the United States. The United States is really in many ways, a very unique case. Culturally, it's unique. So when you have these, you know, you have something like Marxism, which it, it just for many Americans, it wouldn't have been perceived necessarily as a threat, just very strange. And Americans had their own traditional boundaries and barriers and cultures and norms that that they would have felt very safe, even with something like that. They couldn't understand, I think, even at the time, what a significant thing, like how significant that this uh, ideology would become later. And so you you have this long, you have this really long genealogy that really stretches back to the 19th century, even the United States, of people that at least adhere to some, you know, the, the Marxist view of history, uh, budding field of economics and so on. And so, but labor is still there, as you brought up. And so you have in the United States, you have labor is represented by various political movements, but especially the Democrat Party. And then you have these populist movements that come, you know, that really they rise. At, you know, you have somebody like William, Gen- William Jennings Bryan, mm-hmm. really kind of the high point of that populist alliance between farmers, bimetallists, mm-hmm. um, between even socialists, Christian progressives. And and it rises and it finally breaks on the rocks. And this is where from the remnants of this this is where you start to see where communists make a lot of gain. And like I mentioned last time when we spoke, 
the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia really changed. It was a sea change in the culture of the left. Because if you look at the way that those who, you know, Demo, not all Democrats are, are leftists. There isn't quite that same distinction in the United States at the time. But where you see communists and socialists really start to gain a lot of ground, I think the, the left-right distinction starts to make a lot more sense. And this is where you have a sea change in that culture on the left. And so, yes, like you brought up, there's there has been a long, long history of labor, labor in the United States. It's a huge it's a huge contest between labor and capital. How to resolve that tension is really central to so much of our politics in the late latter half of the 19th century. And then from there, you start to see communists and socialists making inroads with these different labor groups. And then you there's a lot of conflict that starts to erupt as you have as you start to see that these people that are that you consider your allies that are, you know, that are working towards, you know, trying to fight for better wages or whatever, um, that there's also ulterior motives. It's not just to fight for these, un, un, you know, united goals that we all have. It's to take over the labor organization. It's to subvert the labor organization. It's to kick out the original leadership. And without going too much into that, there were many cases in which you had strikes and violence that was sparked by by communists and that that violence really hurt the labor movement. And so you had labor leaders that were would call themselves socialists, but they would not call themselves communists. Yeah. And they felt very hostile to communism. And there was a lot of fighting, the infighting that went on in the on in the beginning and then aftermath of the first quote unquote Red Scare. And what that was and why that's important, because it sets us up for a brown scare, is that that was that after the Bolshevik Revolution, these communists, self-styled communists in the United States, many of them are immigrants, but there are Americans that are, you know, that come from a more your your waspy background that mm -hmm. still they they are able to to get inroads in with high society because they're they're kind of emissaries from from the this embattered you know embittered embattled group of communists in the United States that's stretched out from one shore to the other right yeah they're involved in the labor movement and there are strikes and there's violence breaking out and what ends up happening is after the Bolshevik Revolution essentially uh, communists follow Lenin's dictum to spread worldwide revolution and they declare a war on the American US government and on capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's within their the party platform at the time. And there are competing communist parties at the time, but there is a central communist party that eventually becomes the CPUSA. And really like this gets denied <laughs> on the left over and over again. But yeah. it's just explicit is that the goal was to a violent overthrow of capitalism and of the US government. That was from the get go. That was what the object was. And by seeing Russia succeed, everyone thought that Germany would fall next. It was American communists were emboldened by this and wanted to see the United States become a, a communist country, which is so far-fetched and ridiculous to think today. But people people really yeah. wanted that and believed that. And so there was a, ma a widespread rash of violence. The attorney general's house was firebombed and a lot of bombings, a lot of assassination attempts. And what ended up happening is you have the rise of that attorney general Palmer, and then you have J. Edgar Hoover. They basically came together and they just did a clean sweep of American communists in the United States. And they just, they threw the, <laughs> they basically went through. And if you were, if you seemed like a communist, you got thrown into these holding pens and then they deported 
hundreds of communist agitators, including Emma Goldman, and kicked them out of the United States. I mean, and what where you, why this is important is because yeah. this where communists were kind of seen as strange and not people didn't really know what to make of them at the time, even on the left. Right. And then you had tension between communist agitators and between, you know, true blue socialists. But you start after the 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 severe heavy handed backlash against communists by, you know, the Palmer raids and by Hoover. Then you start to see that the sympathy of the left is peaked and they start to worry about these communists and see that that these communists are being treated unfairly. They're being manhandled by the state. And over and over, there were cases where the state did not produce the goods. They weren't able to verify that so-and-so was a communist, that, you know, they they just started scooping up people and violating their rights is, is what, you know, their critics would say. And so yeah. this really hurt the anti-communist movement in the United States because what it did is it galvanized communists in the eyes of progressives. And so many key leaders, progressives in the progressive movement, uh, that you know, they came together, pooled resources, and they they fought a lot of legal battles to protect these communists. And what it did is culturally on the left, not only was the left kind of imbued with this revolutionary fervor at the time, mm -hmm. but they also viewed anti-communism as a conspiracy. That really, what it was is that anti-communists and conservatives that. They were using their they were using communists and their attacks on communists to really strip the rights and, and civil rights and liberties of regular Americans to try to curtail the power of the left as much as possible. And so it, this ongoing conspiracy theory after this, after the Palmer raids and after the backlash of the Palmer raids, mm -hmm. it, it really pervades throughout the 20th century. And it really hits its high point in the McCarthy era because for years, decades, Many people on the left, prominent liberals, people that I wouldn't say were necessarily even, they want, were not consciously sympathetic to communism, but they believed that anti-communism was a conspiracy against the left, that it was completely unfounded, that it was sloppy, it was heavy-handed, it was just a, a thinly veiled attempt to, to consolidate as much power in the hands of, of capital or of, of conservatives, traditionalists as possible. And this 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 cloud hangs over anti-communism for decades. And so um, I'm, I know that that's a lot of history. No, <laughs> no. To get, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Stop me. Oh, no, 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 no. Go ahead. Uh, CJ, do you, you have something you wanted to bring up? Uh, well, I, I just wanted to know, like, you know, the way that I think about these things is, you know, to what extent, um, or I guess the better way of framing it is when in history – did that communist left sort of dissipate and transition into a new left? I know, I know the sixties are sort of the general spot for that, but um, you know, when did the intelligence agencies, you know, stop worrying about the communist threat? Um, did they ever take on some of those characteristics uh, Were the intelligence agencies ever filled themselves with, you know, agents of, you know, the Marxist revolutionary thinking? That's a great question. It's a tough question too, because some of these things are really hard to, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about an effect. I'll put it this way is that when you fight an enemy, you, you tend to ad adopt many of the characteristics of the enemy that you are fighting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think this is a really important insight that gets lost when we talk about the cold war, the United States 
for those who were unknowingly operating with communists and under, underestimated them, but they were not themselves communists, right? Um, I First of all, I think that that tendency to underestimate shows kind of verifies what Whitaker Chambers was saying about the revolutionary character of the New Deal and some of the and and the changes that went on to mobilize the United States for war. There was a cultural change. It made communists not only for those who maybe pitied them from the first Red Scare when they they really got slapped down. Um, there was a change in in the intelligentsia at the time. There was a change with liberals at the time where they couldn't recognize communists. So I think the revolutionary change and how what it what it did, the disruption of the constitutional order, the cultural change, it it made communism seem harmless. It made it seem it made it seem that people regularly underestimated the Soviets, right? And I I think that speaks to the cultural change in which the left was changed, whether they knew it or not. But on top of that, for those that there were, I mean, we can't deny it was not just that the Cold War was a bunch of right-wing Cold Warriors fighting, the, you know, fighting communists. There were people that called themselves liberals and they detested communism and they fought communism. They effectively fought uh, communist infiltration. But again, when we're working with machinery of government, I think that there's a tendency, just like in warfare, is that you begin to adopt the characteristics and traits of your adversary. And I do believe that in the process of us fighting a Cold War over the course of decades, whether the American, whether Americans wanted to or not, there was a change in which we started to resemble the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union in many ways started to resemble us. Arguably, it destroyed the Soviet Union. But I think that that's something that gets lost in our discussion here. And when it comes to intelligence agencies and when it comes to government agencies, we know that the New Deal was essentially opened up many, many new jobs to people that were, you know, prospective government employees that tended to have a certain kind of background and pedigree. You know, you had to be educated. You had to have certain skills. And these were usually acquired in more prestigious institutions. Well, those that 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 is fertile ground for people on the left, obviously. And FDR was very cognizant about stacking the administrative state with people that were, you know, that were sympathetic and understood the 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 vision of the New Deal it essentially, you know, I've heard it described. I think it's accurate. It, you know, the New Deal kind of installed a, a one-party state in the United States in many ways. Um, but this also became fertile ground for communist infiltrators. And so there were card-carrying communists. And I'm not just saying people that belong to the party. Uh, because something that people need to understand is when you belong to the Communist Party of America, you belong to an organization that was owned by, owned and dictated by a hostile foreign power. Yeah. Joseph Stalin was intimately involved with the party's business. So this was also fertile recruiting ground for Soviet agents. So NKVD and then later, you know, they become the, the KGB. They are pulling and plucking people from the ranks of the party to work in the underground. And the communists knew the underground very well. The underground was where they had to go after, after you know, Palmer's raids. And so they knew how to operate within the underground. And this is where they started. They start to install this architecture of infiltration and subversion, not only into labor unions and other groups like that, but also into the U.S. government. And this includes the precursor to what we have, the CIA. So the OSS, the Pentagon. Well, this was prior to the building of the Pentagon, but, you know, the DOD. So you have our defense, you know, our War Department. 
um, the military, the you know these communist subversives were were targeting these these different institutions as well. So they came in on a wave in the New Deal, hundreds, you know, and maybe thousands, um, and then you know over the course of a decade, and then you have during the war, because there is during the 30s there's this unit there's kind of a unity called the Popular Front where mm-hmm. at first the USA, the communists in America were very hostile to, to Roosevelt. They thought that the New Deal was fascist. And this was something kind of, obviously, this is all marching orders from Stalin, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, every time that they're echoing their own, their thoughts are not their own. And so whenever you hear Earl Browder from the Communist Party of America during the 30s speaking, he's basically speaking on behalf of Stalin, okay? And so at the beginning, there's resistance to the New Deal. They don't like the New Deal. They, I think they see it as a competitor to what they want for the yeah. country. They accuse FDR of being a fascist. Well, as as the world stage changes, then Stalin sees a lot of uh, a lot of potential for an alliance between American interests and and his own interests in in trying to thwart Nazi Germany. And so during this time, CPUSA then changes and. Um, they they basically create a united front against fascists in America and abroad. Okay, and what that looks like is that is communists start to join other organizations which they're prohibited from joining by the party to try to take over the organizations or at least spread their ideas and find alliances in traditional liberal institutions and outlets. And this there's a big effort in media at the time, so newspapers. The New Republic, if you've, you know, it's still around. The New Republic, the nation, the nation. These are these are magazines and newspapers which were on the left at the time and openly on the left. But there was a huge effort to defend communists in from those different magazines, and that there were there were communists actually got involved with the the operations of those newspapers and the editorials that were allowed to go through. Uh, the I know the New Republic, I believe, was owned at one time by a car, by a, a Soviet agent, a paid Soviet agent. Um, and the family that was uh, that had owned that magazine uh, had a, had two or three within the immediate family uh, people that not only belonged to the CPUSA, but were working with the Soviet underground at the time. And so th- this was a this was a very intelligent effort to try to get the left, to unite the left around the principles and the shared interests of the Communist Party and of the Soviet Union. And it, and it was very <laughs> at the time. And so, you know, a roundabout way to get to your question is that there was an infiltration effort and that even after the Soviet Union in the United States found itself on opposite ends of the geopolitical spectrum, and there was a lot of enmity between the two, when Democrats and Republicans alike saw the danger and started to really force apart uh, the the Soviet Union from the United States, the influence of these forces was still there. There were still people that had been prominent activists during the popular front years who had been called themselves communists. And maybe they had changed their mind on some things. But the point I'm trying to make here is the effect is deeper than that, right? The culture is deeper than that. Yeah. And so where we're adopting tactics, there's also shared ideals. I think that's an important thing to focus on is that mm-hmm. the ideals that the New Deal espoused, the new the ideals, these are these have a lot more in common with the ideals that were purported by other 
by other world powers, including the Soviet Union, than they were to the constitutional order that preceded it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, one, one thing uh, to go along with CJ's question, maybe, maybe to put some more detail or some more teeth on it is you have this, this sort of um, left-wing narrative that the CIA and, and the OSS, which preceded it, was actually fascist, right? Alan Dulles was a fascist. You have Operation Paperclip, where they bring in all of the you know, former members of the SS and, and 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 things of that nature. But then, all right, that's that's the prevailing narrative, at least kind of in your Reddit history of of the CIA. And um, at the same time, you look at the things the CIA actually did in the 50s and 60s and beyond, uh, particularly in places like Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, they were actively subverting the um, European colonial arrangements. So they're actively subverting the, the British Empire and, and the, uh, the French Empire and, de and, and pursuing decolonization alongside of the Soviets in all of these places. And so they're pursuing like the same interests of, of the Soviets to to rip these places away from Europe and get them for themselves, get them for the United States rather than for the Soviet Union. But the, the, the end result is the same. They, they, they tear apart these European empires. Um, and so how much, I mean, how much of that in, in your opinion is due to the fact that there were, you know, at least fellow travelers among uh, the people who, ran the state department ran american foreign policy ran uh you know espionage and, and intelligence operation coup d'etats and, and and that sort of thing how how much communism was there and was that driving especially the anti-colonial um stuff in the in the late 40s all the way into the 60s uh, great question i mean this is this is like the kind of fighting that you know cold war historians do constantly um yeah so, yeah. yeah, there was there was definitely so Soviet infiltrators were in all sorts of departments. We know that now. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a good for people that are listening that are new to this, uh, the Venona transcripts, you can you can go through mm -hmm. the Venona files. They were declassified in 1995. There's a whole nother story on why they were declassified, what was happening that you know, we could yeah. get into another time. But um, I urge people to read those. That will at least give you an idea that there were communist infiltrators in high positions of government. Remember that the Soviet Union, see, this is the thing people don't understand. We get ourselves in a security mindset alone. It was not just making pinpoint decisions on a map. That was not what yeah. the communist infiltrators were or the subversives. That was not mm -hmm. the, the top priority of Moscow. Moscow wanted their agents to influence policy. That was the creme de la creme. That was what, yeah. that was the jewel that Stalin was going for is policy, implementing policy. So he wasn't alone interested in just, you know, getting a, 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 a lieutenant or something in the army to start, you know, sending plans of aircraft, which they did do, yeah. right? Or enabled that, yeah. that happen. That was important. But to somebody like Stalin and the way that he viewed the conflict at the time and, and his goals, he wanted people in positions of, of authority that would be able to make and influence policy, policy that had it, it could have a domestic factor alone. He very much prioritized those that could have both domestic and an international influence. 
And so, yes, there were there were individuals that were that had infiltrated the State Department is a great example. That's actually what McCarthy had started with was a list that he came out of supposedly of Soviet uh, communists, card carrying communists that were in the employ of the State Department at the time, because the State Department was known as being a problem. Uh, there were many there were there were many allegations of communist infiltrators. Alger Hiss is the most visible that we know today because he was tried found guilty of perjury but yes so there were people that had infiltrated the state department and they you know the lock of china that's a very fascinating thing to look into uh, many of the allegations that Carl mccarthy made about the loss of china which people will focus on the allegations he made against george c marshall and show how ridiculous that would be but I mean, there's a kernel of truth to every one of his allegations. And that's that's something I think people should maybe look into and focus on a little bit more, because like you mentioned, the United States did have a policy of decolonization. Now, whether that was a and this is where I think we have to be careful. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the, the more important story, what we what we really want to know is, you know, was were these changes that happened? Was this natural to us or was this imported from abroad? And, and yeah. really carried on by by communist subversives and by KGB agents. I think that the in the past we focused tremendously on the individuals, the KGB agents alone, and trying to measure the impact they had, decisions or where they were. That's a very interesting, fertile ground for exploration. I'm kind of beyond that now. My studies are more where our where our cultures aligned, where the yeah. interest aligned because like i said the influence the these revolutionary these revolutionary changes affected all of us they affected the united states in a unique way and so when it came down to making policy i'm not going to say that fdr was a secret communists I, yeah. I just i can't find that but that's not really like the interesting story the interesting story is fdr represented a change a sea change that was the same sea change that that transformed the Soviet for the Russian Empire into the Soviet Union. Yeah. And that those those goals were very much aligned until those two powers found themselves at loggerheads. And so, yes, I think Europe didn't understand. See, the war started as, you know, we're gonna go and, and protect Poland. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, sadly enough, who who gets left you know, carrying the bag and completely gets done dirty is Poland in the end. Um, yeah. And so like we now know like the war, you know, the war might have started one way, but we know how it ended. And yeah. and the thing is, is that the United States brought part of Europe, Western Europe into its sphere of influence. And I think Europeans, I think Europeans didn't quite understand that until until the decolonization effort started. And America really was flexing into being an empire. Um, and so, yeah, the United States, I, I think, sorry, I don't mean to be nebulous here, but I, I'll say that <laughs> it, it's, it's a, this is a tough issue because it's very complex and because the United States government at this time is starting to become incomprehensible, right? We yeah. know it's incomprehensible today, but it was, it, this is the beginnings of it being incomprehensible, right? Where the changes, the constitutional order has been replaced by really like rule by an anointed cast of, of players that that their interests are not necessarily aligned with the people or with the consent of the governed. And this has international Im impact, right? Mm -hmm. Import. 
So this same thing is being tried abroad as well. Like the same effect is being felt abroad as well. And so the, the United States, you, there's not like there's not an American interest alone at play. Mm -hmm. And I think that people understand that if they look at the present as well. There are factions within this nebulous system that had been constructed during the New Deal. And these factions are competing with one another. They're, they have similar goals. They have aligned interests, sometimes with foreign powers. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are there are interests that compel these factions within government. And that that's where the real game is being played. It's not necessarily always in the elections. Yeah. It's, not, it's not even between communists and the forces of democracy at this point yeah. after the war. There, there, there is this is this is the rise of powerful political factions within this state that have the a layer of secrecy that protects them, that has they're not impacted by elections like they would have been in the past. And so these factions of power, you know, this Atlantic old guard, they they're able to make decisions and have interests that sometimes will align with communists. And sometimes they will go, you know, they'll be diametrically opposed to that of communists. Um, but see, I think that that's the underlying thing to focus on. And I know it's not as sexy. It's, it's, it would, a lot of people <laughs> want to believe that our government was hijacked by a bunch of communists. And in many ways, certain things, certain ways it was, right? Mm -hmm. We did have communist infiltrators. We did have subversives. We had KJB agents at the highest levels of government. But the bigger story is, is that we, uh, there, there was a sea change that changed, that transformed us and our allies that later became our enemies. And it was a similar, it was this, a similar revolutionary force. And I think that's the more important thing, because if you, if you don't see it that way, then you'll be of the opinion of many on the right during the end of the, you know, at the end of the cold war, Hey, the Soviet union's defeated. It's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you see this today. I mean, you see this today with, I don't, I, I don't know if you subjected yourself to watching the um, presidential uh, Republican primary, um, but you see this with like like uh, Mike Pence, you know, use, you know, uttering these Reaganite talking points four years later mm -hmm. as though, you know, we – we're, we're fighting for freedom and we, ha we have this wonderful American democracy and it's still, it's still trotted out this way that it's still uh, viewed at least among you know, wide portions of the population on the right, that, that the Soviet union is gone. And so the, that threat to our way of life just disappeared and yeah. is gone when the reality is that this, this political and, and cultural revolution that that began much earlier in, in in the middle of the 20th century continued to occur, continued to take place, and and get worse and worse, and and now it's reached a zenith. And it isn't, you know, like you said, it isn't as, as simple as there were just communist agents pulling the strings and every single thing, and it was always the Soviets up to it. I mean, they they had some involvement for for sure. I mean, that's that's an incontrovertible fact. But um, it's it's its own particular kind of revolution that that took place. Its own particular kind of leftist revolution. We you know CJ brought up the you know the 1960s radicals. You know the students for the Democratic Society and and Weathermen and and all the people where that Barack Obama came from. Um, and and then yeah, you end up having a person like Barack Obama becomes the president of the United States, and his two terms also had this 
drastic impact on our our country and uh, we're still you know we're still coming to grips with all the damage that was done over those those eight years um and, and so I guess the, the 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 greater question is is what um what would it take for people to to begin to see it this way I mean because you you have you have these people who who have these these talking points that are just totally oblivious to what has occurred what what does it take for people to see that we have had revolutionary change in our own country uh, for the last near, nearly the last century, and and that the toothpaste is out of the tube, and there there really is no going back to the old order without a, a tremendous amount of pain and conflict and fighting uh, to get to that point. What what would it what is it what's it going to take, uh, Lafayette Lee? <laughs> well, I man, this is that's the golden question, and I think. My my project has been I, you know I, I delve into this stuff and I mean we can always go into all the details and that's yeah. all very interesting I I do that on the timeline sometimes but I I try to always bring it back to this yeah um, Americans by and large even you know even liberals they they want to see this continuity liberals will see this as a progression you know this is just yeah. one giant you know, leap of progress from 1776 till now, you know, we, we come along and we tinker with, we tinker with things and make things better. And, you know, it's, it's progress. Conservatives, that's a harder pill to swallow because there's many things that they can't really stomach as being progress, right? Mm -hmm. They do see that the left has been ascendant. The left has been able to, to run the tables on them through the levers of, of power. Yeah. And so that's a harder case to be made, but they still feel this connection to 1776. They still feel that that has relevance and they're part of that, which I think is a good thing. Okay. And some on the right will fight me on this and I'm fine with that. Uh, but there are fundamental questions. We talked about this before, but there are fundamental questions we need to ask ourselves because if we're going to play along and say, okay, we are the same country that came, you know, that was born in 1776. And we still talk about the declaration. We still talk about the ethos of that document. We talk about the constitution. We see the relevance to us today. And we still, we still respect it. You know, the governor of New Mexico can come out and say that she's going after people's guns and there are sheriffs and other people that will stand up and say, no, that, that yeah. Yeah, will not stand. See, that's where it's important. People on the right need to get this is that there clearly it has credence still. It does mm -hmm. have credence. It, it if nothing in the hearts of the people. I think that is mm -hmm. something you cannot just easily cast aside. Yes. But the fundamental question is the, the, the Re American Republic at, at its base level, it, at least the idea of it, is that the sovereignty is lies in the hands of the people, that the consent of the governed is the cornerstone of our system of government. This has been purported for centuries. Okay, we say this all the time. the The forces of our democracy, you know, say this constantly, whether they mean it or not. So I think that we need to we need to be able to bring that up and take a harder look at it and say, okay, yeah. truly. Is the consent of the govern governed still the cornerstone of this of this regime? Is the, does the sovereignty lie in the hands of the people? Yeah. We need to explore this, and we need to paint a picture for people, because yeah. there is real righteous indignation that exists when when we point these things out, and that's valuable and it's important because it's truthful. Mm -hmm. 
People feel this because it's real. They don't feel like it's appropriate for the government to go to engage in proxy wars when they haven't been consulted by their representatives. Yeah. The trillions of dollars are going out the door on a 20-year war, which has not really been placed back into the public sphere for debate. These are like fundamental questions. The idea of taxation without representation. We just, many of us on the right, because we see all the decay and the problems, we see this history and it mm -hmm. disturbs us. It, it's easy just to laugh it off and say, well, you know, how ridiculous would it be to, to even go back to 1776 and examine these things? But yeah. there's power there because the legitimacy of our political class gets called into question when we bring these things up because they have violated these things. And because the revolutionary changes of the 20th century upended that constitutional order, that needs to be addressed. You know, this this has been this has been a, a century of radical change that the American people are in a state of, of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And it is it has polluted our culture with so much chaos and division and and di and and discontent. And this is just a sign of these radical changes taking place where the people were never consulted, where the people have been just completely ran over by an anointed cast of leaders. And like, that's where I say, this is why we dig into these things. This is why it's important to interrogate the past, the narrative of the past. This is why it's important to take a second look at McCarthy. You might find the McCarthy, you know, you might find the McCarthy was playing fast and loose at times with his facts, but he was fundamentally correct that our government had gone undergone this incredible change that the issues of communist infiltration had never been addressed, had been denied and covered up by multiple administrations, that the people were never consulted in going to war until we were attacked, that these things, that these things had fundamental, long lasting impact an impact on American society, right? Mm -hmm. Why, why is it that uh, terror terrorists from the new left, you know, the, you talked about the weather underground and we bill airs and, and Bernadine Dorn. Why is it, why did they make such a seamless transition into academia? Yeah. You know, why does, why does the child of one of these become a DA in San Francisco and drive yeah. the, the city into the ground and then find a position within weeks at the, at, in Berkeley, you know, like, yeah. Can people not see that this is this has in there there has been a real problem where this same this same ideology has infected our institutions, and at the at the base of this all comes down to those fundamental questions that were being sorted out in 1776: is what does a government that has that consults the people look like? Where in sovereignty does not exist in an arbitrary power, what does that look like? I don't know if we can return to 1776. I'm not really saying that. What I'm saying is those questions still matter. And if we're going to get anywhere, I think we need to draw, paint that picture, draw that contrast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, CJ, do you have any other questions? I think we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah, I guess my last one would be, you know, like some people, you may disagree with this, but like Paul Gottfried, he's kind of see he would interpret what's happened over the latter half of the 20th century has been um, that the communist threat has largely subsided and the fall of the Soviet Union helped to bring about the end of a communist threat. And it's been replaced by a new left that can't be described as communistic, but it can be equally subversive. And it, it, it's, um, it's learned the lessons of the 20th century in a much more holistic way than like the liberal conservative consensus has. So, so I guess my question is, 
would you characterize the current left as also be a communistic threat or is it like sort of a post-Marxist left or does it even matter? No, I think that's a great, I think Paul Gottfried, I think nails it really well from my, from my research and understanding everything I've, I've tried to wrap my arms around with her. I think he's right. There is not, this is not that the left today is not a left that they, they have been influenced by these things. They are a post-Marxist left because the, at the at the very base of this is the the tactics that the new left has is adopted and has developed are are these 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 have an antecedent and we can see those uh, throughout the Cold War. Okay, but at the same time, this is not a hard boiled bunch of Marx like communists. These people do not read books. They don't understand economics and and really like yeah. Marxist economics were they were widely discredited following you know this. I mean, this is we have to remember that like. There are people, see, where do, there are not a lot of Marxist economists left. You can't really go find them in the university, but you'll find them throughout the English department. I think that that's important yeah. to look at because this is a left that was, you know, the communist, the communist threat was, was it, it didn't just get, it was broken in many ways during, as we severed our ties with the Soviet Union. Um, but the remnants evolved and changed. It's it's yeah. very similar to the idea. Like I I absolutely agree with the idea that you know talking about socialism versus capitalism is a very 19th century discussion. Yeah. You know, um, even if you even want to call it capitalism, which isn't even like a word. It's you know this is borrowed from Marxism, but yeah. we're not really like talking about capitalism and socialism. Nikki Haley, you know, we're <laughs> our our economy has changed. Like we have transformed. This is history, right? We have to yeah. have a historical view here. We're like a managerial regime. That's what this is. And so it's like, mm -hmm. it's not unlike these movements. It's not unlike the new left. You know, the new left learned in the 1970s that if they engaged in bombing campaigns at the Capitol, they were going to, you know, their leadership was going to get gutted and sent at least get a slap on the hand. Okay. And they could only go back and work in a university. It didn't really work. Okay? They did. They underestimated their abilities. So what did they do? Well, they, they changed, right? So it became a lot more insipid. It became something much more subversive. It, they found they found their sanctuary in academia. Okay, and I think we are seeing the effects of their influence today. But it is not Marxist. No, it's not totally Marxist in nature. It has the same tactics, but they embrace. I mean, they embrace massive corporations. They have these. You know, they they don't like billionaires because there's a resent because these people. If you think about it, the new left. The, the hand that feeds them are they're getting donations. They're getting money through the state. They're getting grants. Like this is how they survive. They are not productive people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so they hate billionaires because billionaires represent a, a, almost a, a competitor to that model, right? Billionaires are different. So that rhetoric often gets couched as like anti-capitalist. They're not really like that. You know, they love tech companies. They love these things. Yeah. That's what they use for to exert control over everyone else. And so I think that that is an important distinction, CJ. I think that's great. I think Paul Godford nailed it, is we can't get carried away as we notice this. We need to realize where it's evolved and changed and how it's changed. We, we can't really go back and say, you know, there are KGB agents during this time and and now completely ran by, you know, closet communists. It's not like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all I have. That's... <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, I think that's also all the time that we have uh, today. Uh, we, we're kind of under the gun for time, unfortunately, this week. Uh, but 
uh, is there any any uh, work uh, recently that uh, that you want to promote uh, Lafayette uh, that you want to let people know to check out? Yeah, I uh, I mentioned it before, but I do have an apocalypse now analysis. I see it as yes. Nishan, so I'm drawing on some of that, but it, it will go into a little bit of this because I uh, I see a lot of relevance. Uh, to some of the problems that our protagonist in Apocalypse Now is wrestling with and what we're wrestling with today. So I have another one coming out today. I'm a little bit late on that because I, you know, we had some uh, stuff going on over here, but that will be dropping today. So if anybody wants to check that awesome. out, that's over my uh, Substack, which is ruins.substack.com. Excellent. Well, yeah, I will definitely check that out because uh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, just everything Vietnam war, uh, to me is, is always fascinating. I mean, that just, I mean, we, we can do an episode just on the Vietnam war and, and talking about that conflict and, and what, what it means for American culture. Um, and, and, and all of that. Uh, so that, I mean, and, and your take on it, this, this, you know, Nietzschean, uh, take, uh, analysis of, of that, that film. Uh, I can't, I can't wait to read it. So, uh, I hope I encourage everyone else to to check that out as well. How about how about you, CJ? What uh, what have you got going on besides uh, becoming a, a camper baron? A camper baron. Well, um, I've been tweeting about Franco. <laughs> <laughs> um, so go read my tweets. I did a series on tweets or on Franco and blasphemy. And yes, uh, Jenna Ellis right now is jumping into my mentions. She's very upset with me. And um, yeah. so yeah, go check out. Twitter, uh, nothing new on the Substack, so that's all from me. All right. How about Chronicles? Is there any? Are there any new episodes of Chronicles coming out? It will be up uh, to one tomorrow. Okay. All right. We'll yeah. check that out too. I always, I always get a lot out of those. And uh, for me, uh, I, I'm hoping I, I always say this. I've, I've been behind on, on posting new articles because I've been busy promoting a book. So I'm going on every podcast that that I possibly can, and uh, it's been great. I love, I love going on podcasts, uh, and it it um it's been it's been going great the book is is still selling really well so tell your friends if you've read it tell your friends go buy the book and read it and and enjoy it i think a lot of people are, are getting a lot out of it so i'm i've been really uh really really encouraged by that uh but that's all all for me uh for this week and and for all of us thank you uh so much for for watching this listening to this and uh stay dangerous and we will see you next time